Truth News Network. In a world where up is down and sideways is a way of life, when the truth one moment is a lie the next, and everything is your fault, you need hope. You need clarity. You need TNN, the Truth News Network, and Dan Newman. Hey, I'm right here. Been here all the time waiting for you. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to TNN Live. Here we are still in the hills of Texas. There are a bunch of them over there. On the road is TNN, TNN Live, and I'm glad you chose to join us today. You know what we're going to do today? Normally, this would turn into, it always does, a bashing session on the President of the United States. Look, we know all about his cognitive issues. We know all about the fact that President Biden's getting kind of old. So we're going to give him a slide today, give him a free pass. Well, we can't do that. (laughs) We just can't do that because there are so many things out there. But we're going to begin the show today, instead of talking about President Biden, something we haven't delved into a whole lot, getting into the details of this January 6th committee and what they're all about. I think from the the 10,000-foot level, you know what they're doing. You know what it's all about. It's simply to try to do everything they can do to keep Donald Trump from running for president in 2024. And at the end of that, they have these fleeting hopes that they're going to find, they're going to find the one thing that they can use to get the Department of Justice to file criminal charges against Trump, because obviously we can't have somebody in the White House that's committed crimes, right? Well, we've got, no, I'm not going to go back there. I told you we weren't going to get on Biden. But let's look at the January 6th committee. Let me tell you what we're going to do. We're going to kind of put it in synopsis format. They've done some things that just don't make a lot of sense. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's in the middle of it. She's promoted a bunch of inaccuracies, even lies regarding people and events And they've weaved a narrative. They've just put together the narrative. Now, here's how they've done it. They came up with the narrative first. And then they sat around a table and they all threw in their particular answers to this one question. What things can we possibly use to denigrate Donald Trump to the point of showing the American people that he is an evil guy and that we're more, more, more clean and more qualified to control the government, the White House, than is any Republican. And they came up with some things, and they went after him. There are seven specific things that they came up with. And I want to just kind of um, go through and maybe hit the highlights of these. Seven. Number one, Trump, they say, incited the riot. Now remember this, the second impeachment of Trump, it was based on Democrats' claim that he incited the Capitol riot with his speech at the January 6th Stop the Steal rally. Remember that? They're still, Democrats are still promoting this claim in the January 6th committee, in spite of abundant evidence that shows that's not true. And they keep beating that drum. Why? Because they want the American people to get that hammered into their memory so that when the 2024 election cycle begins in earnest, they'll know, hey, remember, we told you Trump incited the riot. The intelligence community, 
They learned more than two weeks prior to the riot, remember this, that there would probably be violence on January 6th. Trump, by the way, through all of the committee's findings so far, did not meet the legal threshold for indictment. And they they want to indict him for inciting the riot. There is a particular legal threshold that is required to charge anybody for incitement. According to the timeline of events, the Capitol was breached before Trump even ended his speech. Well, that's number one. Trump incited the riot. What's number two? The deployment of the National Guard on January 6th was delayed. Can you believe this? They're actually using that against Donald Trump. Of all of these seven, this one just blows my mind absolutely apart. Both the Defense Department Inspector General and the Joint Chiefs of Staff Chairman General Mark Milley both said that the National Guard was not delayed in its deployment. The DOT even offered to make the National Guard available four days before the riot. Well, who turned the spigot off? They were rebuffed by the Capitol Police Chief Steve Sund. Sund later changed his mind, but his request for guard troops was denied by the Senate Sergeant-at-Arms at the time, Michael Stinger, and House Sergeant-at-Arms, Paul Irving. These are the ones that said, no, don't send the National Guard. Now, kind of wonder, I kind of wonder, who do they work for? Hmm, that would be the leader in the Senate and the leader in the House, and who would that be? Hmm, Chuck Schumer in the Senate, Nancy Pelosi in the House. Trump did sign an order. He signed an order on January 4th, two days before the insurrection. That order was to deploy 20,000 guardsmen if requested by Congress, because the White House, in this instance, regarding anything to do physically with the Capitol building, it has to be Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi. The deployment of the National Guard on January 6th was delayed. Yes, it was, but it wasn't Donald Trump. It was those sergeants at arm and the minority, excuse me, the majority leader in the Senate, Chuck Schumer, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. Number three, ex-NYPD Commissioner Bernie Carrick. You remember him? Well, he was in Washington, D.C. on January 5th for a meeting. And the meeting was specifically to discuss overturning November 2020 election results. So in the transmittal letter with the subpoena that they served Carrick with, the committee served him, it included three citations with its allegation that Bernie Carrick was in the Capitol on January 5th. However, none of those citations claimed that Carrick attended that meeting. According to Carrick's phone and toll booth records, he was in the Big Apple, New York City, for a family emergency that day. He wasn't even there. The committee later admitted, we made a mistake. (laughs) And they had hammered that, hammered that over and over and over again, Carrick. And then it was like, Uh Uh-oh, we got busted. He wasn't even in town. Number four, Representative 
Republican Scott Perry of Pennsylvania, asked Trump for a presidential pardon regarding January 6th. Now, this I always thought was a reach, but nevertheless, according to Democrats, it happened. The vice chair of the January 6th panel, who was at our favorite Republican from Wyoming, Liz Cheney, she claimed that Perry contacted the White House in the weeks after January 6th looking for Donald Trump to give him a presidential pardon. Both Perry and Trump spokeswoman Liz Harrington disputed the claim from the very beginning. Perry said that he was in the Capitol doing his legislative duties on January 6th and that the notion that I ever sought a presidential pardon for myself or other members of Congress is an absolute shameless and soulless lie. That's a quote. Liz Harrington said she talked with multiple people regarding Cheney's claim about Perry, and they all said it wasn't true. Nobody said it was true except Liz Cheney. And then number five, Representative Barry Loudermilk, he's a Republican from Georgia, led a reconnaissance mission inside the Capitol on January 5th. This one was the one that everybody on the left just went crazy with for weeks and weeks and weeks. In fact, they still bring it up. What was this all about? Well, the Capitol Police refuted this allegation themselves, and they pointed to a very elaborate review of security footage, which they have every day, 24-7, inside and outside the Capitol. And that investigation turned up no evidence that Representative Loudermilk entered the Capitol with any voting constituents on January 5th like the committee alleged happened. The congressman was with a tour only in the Rayburn House office building, which is across the street from the Capitol. And the constituents didn't enter the Capitol building at all. Despite vindication with that, you know that little bitty thing, uh, the truth, evidence, facts. Despite that, by the police and the committee releasing the security footage afterwards, Democrats still claim Loudermilk entered the Capitol with the tour. That was number five. Number six, Senator Ron Johnson. You see him all the time, Republican from Wisconsin. They allege that Johnson was involved in a conspiracy to force alternate electors on Vice President Mike Pence. This is another one. This horse is a dead horse, and they're still beating that horse today. Johnson never handed slates of alternate electors to the vice president, as is alleged. Johnson's staff received an urchin request regarding alternate slates of electors for Michigan and Wisconsin, then asked Vice President Pence's staff about it and stood down after the vice president's aide said they already knew about it and the information was supposed to have arrived in the mail. Another one out there. And then the final one of seven. The president himself tried to grab the steering wheel of a presidential vehicle to divert it to the Capitol. He wanted to go be a part of this insurrection. Cassidy Hutchison, she's become an internet star because she worked in the White House. She was just a junior aide to Trump Chief of Staff Mark Meadows. She testified before the committee 
I guess it's now two weeks ago, and everybody was waiting breathlessly because she was going to just tie the knot on this impeachment. We can't, oh, wait a minute, we can't impeach Donald Trump anymore, but we can get some stuff that, uh, some evidence that is sufficient to charge him criminally. Well, she told the January 6th committee she heard an account from White House Deputy Chief of Staff for Operations, Tony Arnato. Now, she heard this account. In other words, Tony told her a story. Now, I, I'm going to pause right there and tell you this one thing. Have you seen Cassidy Hutchison? She's a darn good-looking woman. Now, I don't know Tony. I don't know who Tony is, but I can tell you this. Tony, if he's like most men, and especially the young breed of men and women that work in political campaigns and would be in the Oval Office as an assistant to Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, I'm sure he, like many other men, would get up on their horse and try to impress a really attractive woman. I'm just saying. Hutchison also testified that Trump lunged for Secret Service agent Robert Engel after trying to grab the steering wheel and that Engel was allegedly in the room when Arnato conveyed the account. Well, guess what? Secret Service said Trump didn't lunge for the steering wheel or Engel. And if you look at the picture of one of the three vehicles that the president, any president, would have been inside of, uh, where the president would be sitting, if he's in that big limo that they take everywhere, I forget what they call it, but it's a monster, it's almost 20 feet from the seat where the president would be to the driver. And so one lunge wouldn't be successful anyway. Ornato, Engel, and the pres- uh, presidential vehicle driver also said they would testify under oath, and they would say, None of this crap ever happened. Now, if that, if those seven are the best that they have to go after Donald Trump, doesn't this look amazingly similar to the quote-unquote evidence that was presented in the House of Representatives for both of Trump's impeachment that happened? It sounds almost the same way. They try to create something out of nothing. In other words, they're trying to, through a mob, turn everybody against Donald Trump and turn their backs on the truth and prop up these allegations that if they were ever proven, of course, it would probably be sufficient to go after the former president. But there's no there there. Once again, I'm going to remind you, What's the big deal about this January 6th committee? What kind of power do they have? I got to be honest with you, it's very scary. These people have access to anything and everything about you, about me, and anybody they want to go after. But here's the deal they don't answer to anybody. Nobody's going to call any of these people that are bringing in all these lies, nobody's going to call them to account for that. And when these hearings take place, a normal hearing of any kind, that sounds very legal, and it should. But remember, we live in the United States of America, where regarding anything and everything, you are always considered innocent unless 
and until you're proven to be guilty. So in that process, we've become a custom over 260 years. I mean, I remember all 260 years, don't you? <laughs> I'm joking. I'm joking. I'm old, but I'm certainly not that old. But we got accustomed to that innocent until proven guilty thing, and it would apply here as well. They started at the other end of the spectrum, and they manufactured seven things here. Trump incited the riot. The deployment of the National Guard on January 6th was delayed by the Trump administration. Ex-NYPD Commissioner Bernie Carrick was in D.C., and he was there to discuss overturning November 2020 election results. And then Scott Perry asked the president, former President Trump, for a presidential pardon. Barry Loudermilk, representative from Georgia, a Republican, he led a reconnaissance mission inside the Capitol the day before the January 6th insurrection. That was out on the street the day this all came down. It was disproven. They never even went into the Capitol building. Senator Ron Johnson was part of a conspiracy to force alternate electors on Vice President Mike Pence. Didn't happen. And the final one, seven, Trump tried to grab the steering wheel of a presidential vehicle to divert it, to go to the Capitol, get me out there so I could be with my people, those insurrectionists. I got to get out there with those proud boys and oath keepers. Cassie Hutchison, by the way, and everybody else that testified before this committee. Remember, this is the United States Congress. You're sworn. You testify to tell the truth. None of what she alleged can be proven. In fact, it's all disproven. And she made it very clear when she testified, and this is why she would never be caught and uh, prosecuted for lying, because she didn't. She just got up there and told stories that somebody told her and that somebody got the stories from somebody else. This is the United States of America. We don't put people in jail for hearsay from somebody else. It just doesn't happen. And yet they are trying to put this bundle of things together with which we got to find a way to stop the orange man from coming back. It's crazy, and the American people get it, so much so. And I'm going to spend just a, a few minutes on the JB stuff. Joe Biden, if you didn't get that. His approval rating, I thought it would never sink any further, but just 29% of voters approve of his service in the White House now. 58% disapprove. Only 19% of independents which is where election results at the federal level are always determined by these independents. And you got to get more than half of them, or at least half of them if you're a Democrat, to get elected. Only 19% of them approve of Biden. 67% of independents say, uh-uh. And then among Hispanics, you know, where Joe salvaged them, or rescued them from living in these horrible conditions in Central America and Mexico, they would, they would all deserve to be loyal to the guy that got them out of there, right? Only 36% approve. 48% of Hispanics disapprove. Now let's look at the Democrat Party. I mean, that's his base, right? In the Democrat Party, only 63% approve of him. 
That's down from 88%, down 22% since July of last year. Biden's approval has dropped five points since just June 20th, folks. Less than a month, five points. Just 36% of Democrats want Biden on the 2024 ticket. That approval rating is a historically low number. According to Gallup, five presidents have sunk into the 20s. Who are they? Harry Truman, 22% there. Joe's got a target, right? He can go down, and but he's still ahead of Harry Truman and Richard Nixon, who dropped to 24%. And Jimmy Carter, the last Democrat that did stuff similar to what Joe Biden's done in the White House, Jimmy Carter, president, 76 to 80, his approval numbers slipped to 28%. George H.W. Bush, Bush 41, 29%. And baby Bush, Bush 43, 25%. Biden's approval rating has been going down, and it's because of a bunch of things. Besides his approval rating beginning to drop back in August when he led that Afghanistan withdrawal that left hundreds of if not thousands of American citizens stranded behind enemy lines. I'll just stop there and say this, and we'll move on. There are still hundreds of Americans that are behind enemy lines in Afghanistan. That should make every American sick. You don't hear anything about them every day, except one place. Sean Hannity, you may not agree with Sean, his methodology and what he does, but at the beginning of every daily show, whoever his booth announcer is that does his promos and intros, gives us how many days ago the Afghanistan withdrawal began and how many days that is till now that these Americans are stuck behind enemy lines. That's kind of an important thing, and we certainly need to remember those people and pray for those people. So where does this all end? Well, the majority of registered Democrats, they want somebody else on the ticket in 2024. Two-thirds of Democrats responded they would rather someone else be at the top of the ticket. Why? They talked about the economy, inflation, Biden's age, his obvious cognitive decline as major determinants for their opposition to his leading the Democrat Party in 2024. This comes from the New York Times, incidentally. Biden was particularly poor with the younger voters. Listen to this. 94% of Democrats under 30 said they would prefer. 94% a different presidential nominee. New York Times poll found 13% of American voters said the nation was on the right track. Lowest number since the depths of the financial crisis back in 2008. By the way, who was in office in 2008? Hmm. You remember? Could it be Joe Biden along with Barack Obama? Despite the low approval numbers, the New York Times poll found that 92% of registered Democrats would begrudgingly vote for Biden against President Trump in a hypothetical matchup. And the Times has Biden edging out Trump 44 to 41% in a nationwide matchup. Let's just look at that. Self-analyze that with me. 
if you if you not don't look at what they look like or don't look at the cognitive decline just look at what they've done in comparison look at Trump's first year and a half look at Biden's first year and a half and compare them and that why we're supposed to vote for any leader at any level of government local state or federal I would think so Biden has done a lot I challenge you to name one good thing that Joe Biden has been able to put into place and get results from name me one name me one raise your hand if you got one just one not a bunch give me one didn't see a hand raised what about Donald Trump are you kidding do you want to go there We published at truthnewsnet.org all of the publicly known results of policies put in place by Donald Trump in his first year. It was 15 pages long, single space typed. I don't need to give any details. So, Joe Biden has become to be known as the excuse guy. He has not accepted a single thing that he has done that's been bad. He has not claimed responsibility for it. And so he's finally found a place to put that blame. He's getting bashed today for a tweet that somebody posted. I, I, I can't imagine Joe Biden ever working on his own Twitter account. But on that account, somebody posted that he blames Republicans for the country's economic problems. He tweeted this, Republicans are doing nothing but obstructing our efforts to crack down on gas price gouging, lower food prices, lower health care costs, hopefully soon lower your prescription drug costs. This is not right. And that's why the election is going to be so darn important. Doesn't that just make you feel warm and fuzzy all over? That's the president of the United States. Well, when that tweet came out, you can imagine he was slapped with criticism online for his comments. And I won't go through them all. I've got a list here that they're all pretty funny. Scott Jennings, who happens to be a CNN contributor and a Bush White House alumnus, he tweeted this, 88% wrong track plus 38% job approval Good effing luck with this BS. Wow. Kimberly Morin. Americans know the truth, big guy. No one is buying your blame game. You and Democrats own inflation. Your policies are making it far worse. Let me just say this. All you got to do is just look around you and look at the results. We're going to take our break here, first break, but when we come back, you remember all that money that came out in one of the pieces that was in it, 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 somebody found it and put it out there about the crack pipe funding of federal money that was going to go there. And of course the White House was quick to say, oh, Jen Psaki, I'll never forget it. Yeah, there are no track, uh, crack pipes in all of this. It's to help people who are addicted get off of 
their drug problem and make sure that all their paraphernalia is clean and good so there's no disease. You remember that? (laughs) I got some more truth for you on the other side. In the steel industry, we dedicate our careers to supporting this country, making products to build infrastructure and skylines, creating jobs, supporting families. And when domestic materials are used, the money stays in our communities. That's what really matters. These people, these places, that's worth supporting. Does it matter to you that all our chefs are well-trained? Or that our kitchens are both SLSI and GMP certified? That we freshly bake goodies throughout the day? Well, it matters to us to know that your family will enjoy every bite. At Kiehl's, we're fresh because of what we do. But more than that, we're fresh because of you. Wendy's famous 4 for 4 is heating up with a new spicy crispy chicken sandwich. The queen of spice is delivering that spicy chicken you love with lettuce and mayo between two deliciously soft buns. And yes, in classic 4 for 4 fashion, you can get all that spicy goodness with spicy or crispy nuggets, fries, and a drink to cool off, all for just four bucks. Is it getting hot in here? Or did Wendy's just deliver the hottest deal in fast food? We got you. Offer includes four-piece nuggets, junior fry, and value drink. Price participation may vary. This is the sound of regular water droplets. This is the sound of vitamin water droplets. Regular water. Vitamin water. Regular water. Vitamin water. Hey, come on now. Vitamin water. It has vitamins, but also parties. Well, don't forget, we published part two today of a great story at truthnewsnet.org. Part one was published yesterday, part two there today. And let me tell you, if you haven't seen those stories, it's about a topic that's pretty important and most media outlets are overlooking it. And it's been around for a number of years. Depopulation, compressing the population, the growth at least, you know, in other words, the fundamental premises, the basis for this by the people that support it is we got to stop the growth in population on the globe or we're going to destroy all our natural resources. That's the excuse that's being used, but uh, got to point to what happened over in Europe back in the 30s and early 40s. What was going on there? It was depopulation. I don't know about that, Dan. I can't think of anything that happened that did that. How about if you were a Jew and you lived in Germany? They slaughtered six million Jews. I don't know a better representation of depopulation going on. Now, are we talking about getting to that? I'm not going to give away the two stories, but it is discussed ad nauseum with experts, with lots of evidence included. Part one yesterday, part two today. Make sure that you check them out. Very important topics for you to consider while you're out there doing your normal stuff. So what about Joe Biden and the crack pipe stuff? 
Well, one harm reduction clinic, that's what they call it, harm reduction clinic that got a bunch of grand funding from Joe Biden's Department of Health and Human Services, they're distributing crap pipes to addicts in New York City. That's happening. It's happening. New York harm reduction educators are part of On Point NYC. They were one of the non-government organizations that got 400000 bucks in grant money from the Biden administration in May. And what that was about was to further its services for drug addicts. Biden officials, they denied reports then that the grant money could fund distribution of crack pipes. But a visit to their office revealed that the organization still offers the smoking paraphernalia to addicts. On Point NYC operates two drug sites. Drug sites. And what do you mean? We're talking about places where they encourage addicts to come in and sit down and do your drugs here. I got to be honest with you, that doesn't that, that, that make any sense to me. I would think the point of doing anything regarding drugs would be to find ways to help people get off of drugs, not to facilitate their continuation of smoking crap by giving them <laughs> crack pipes and giving them a really clean pace, place where they can go in and sit down in a clean place with air conditioning. They can do a little internet search and sit there and smoke crack. After spending just 10 minutes on paperwork with basic information, staff at the facility provided a reporter a smoking kit that contained, listen to this, a crack pipe, condoms, and lubricant. How wonderful is that? That, according to the Department of Health and Human Services and Joe Biden, is critical to the American public. And so we spent, you and me, we spent tens of millions of dollars that we don't have, by the way. We had to go borrow the money, but it's so important, these crack pipes, that we had to go get this money and open up these clinics What a wonderful gift to give a crack addict. A pipe, some condoms, and some lubricant. Another call reporter, within minutes, showed up at one of these, and the staff provided another crack pipe. A staffer at this facility directed the reporter to back rooms for addicts to use drugs under supervision, where the reporter saw individuals smoking and injecting various substances. My, my question was, when I heard this story, was what are they injecting? Where are they getting what they're injecting? Is this outlet facilitating illegal drug use? Hey, we want to make sure you get stuff that you know is not laced with fentanyl. We don't want you to die, and you're going to die if there's fentanyl in it, so let us help you. The facility, by the way, is directly across the street from the Association to Benefit Children, which is a child care facility for underprivileged kids in the New York area. It's the American people's fault that everything is so bad right now, right? Well, there's a new sheriff in town, actually not a sheriff. There's a new group of people that are taking on 
far-left ideals in the midterm elections. This, this is a, a, an amazing story. A congressional candidate in Washington, Washington State, not D.C., Corey Gibson, launched what's called the America First Pact, P-A-C-T, and did it under a proposition to foster a consensus among conservative candidates, not just Republicans, regardless of their background, and to save America from what he calls a radical Biden agenda. I think everybody now can pretty much agree that we're living in a radical Biden administration right now in his agenda. They're calling themselves the anti-squad. <laughs> That's an interesting name, the anti-squad. We're a pact of first-time candidates and political outsiders. We want what's best for America and are united around that common cause. So what does that stand for, P-A-C-T? Protecting America's Constitution and Traditions. They focus on policies that are out there that restore America's role as a beacon of freedom on the world stage. You know, a blazing white city sitting on a hill where everybody from around the world looks and they know they can come here and be created equal. Everybody's innocent here. There's the rule of law. Everybody knows what's legal and what's illegal and they want everybody to come here and mold into that model. Well, that's what it used to be about. The Biden administration, that's not what it's about. So this guy who is running among a field of Republicans in Washington's 4th House District is up against a guy named Dan Newhouse, who's already in office. He was one of 10 Republicans who voted to impeach Donald Trump in the second impeachment trial, by the way. In an interview with Fox News Digital, Representative Gibson said he seeks to undo a common misconception about the America First movement, that it's all about Donald Trump. He said so many people are running for office, they're doing this America First thing because they want to get the favor of Donald Trump. We're not looking at it that way, he said. We're looking at it as, as if we know and recognize which policies work. We're looking at the America First agenda itself. America First for us, he said, is really just about the policies that Trump enacted when he was president. Trump got this movement started, but I think it's much bigger than him. There are a lot of people around there, folks, that feel the same way. And there would be massive, massive numbers of people on the fence that probably back then during the Trump administration and even now, they would fall off that fence on the Trump side if only the messaging was done in a little different vein than he did it. And that's unfortunate. But I still agree that Trump did get the movement started, and I do agree that it's much bigger than him. Gibson said he wishes voters would ask more questions about the America First Pact and the America First Movement so everybody could get a better grasp of what they are all about. The America First blueprint garnered criticism from the left, as you would expect it always would, for allegedly promoting ideas rooted in racism, sexism, homophobia, among other things. But Gibson shunned that notion, noting his own identity 
and the identity of others among the group. He said, I think people associate a personality with America first, tying in criticisms from the left. Gibson, if he's elected, would be one of a few openly gay members of the U.S. House of Representatives. He mentioned his personal life as a snippet of who he is, but he says his sexual orientation has nothing to do with political policy or political belief. Now, wait a minute. Wait a minute. The gay and lesbian community, they're the only ones that have freedom to speak their minds. Anybody that's a conservative, oh my gosh, you're going to bash gay people. You're going to bash all of the regulations and laws and policies that good old Joe Biden put in place for the gay community, right? It's a conundrum that you have an outwardly gay man running for office. Gibson said one of the most important things we need to do as a country is get united again. It's okay to disagree on how we get to that destination. But we got to get real. Start with the idea that first and foremost, whether you're gay, straight, black, white, whatever, we identify ourselves first as what? Americans. What a novel idea. Remember, Joe Biden took that. He took that in his presidential campaign. How many times did he stand before people and say, I don't want to be the president of Democrats. I want to be the president for all Americans. Well, I just thought of something. I said, how many times did he do that? He didn't do it very many times because he didn't get in front of the American people very often when he was running for office. In a press release, the PACT, P-A-C-T, outlined its goals for fostering a better future, and it highlighted the policies that needed to be implemented to realize those goals. That press release said, the PACT is a diverse group of like-minded conservatives, regardless of Trump's endorsement, who are dedicated to working together to enact meaningful policy change through an America First agenda. This means returning us to, guess what, energy independence, defending our borders. Oh my gosh, you can't be a real American and still want us to rely on fossil energy. You just can't do it. And if you think we need to enforce our southern border and keep these poor people from coming in here, you can't be an American, right? Well, they didn't stop there. They want to enact congressional term limits and protect a bunch of, if not all, of the freedoms that we cherish. But Gibson's just one of many people across the nation that are members of America First. What do the other members have to say about the movement's goals, the ideas, and expectations for the midterms? One of them, Dwayne McClure, who is the PAC's executive director and co-founder, he works behind the scenes to keep everything running. He says the organization serves to alter the existing Republican Party to one more focused on fundamental principles of liberty. Liberty, that's a novel idea and do it to ensure a greater future for all Americans. He said, my goal with the pact is to make it a powerhouse of force within the Republican Party and within the country. Our goal has been very simple, which is to fundamentally change the DNA of the Republican Party. Basically, we're tired. 
We're tired of being a party of losers and capitulators that don't even know how to play offense, or if we know how, we're not doing it. McClure shared Gibson's enthusiasm for the diverse field of America First candidates, highlighting his own identity as biracial. We really have a diverse bunch, he said. Christine Vilverde ranks among the candidates McClure identified as an American First stronghold. The congressional candidate, Christine Valverde, is running for a seat in North Carolina's 2nd House District. She issued her own statement about this first pact. She views it as one focused on leading America into a more prosperous future. How does she say we're going to do it? By promoting policies that enact positive changes across the U.S., citing several key issues important to her message. Those included small business protectors, parental rights in education, and energy independence, among others. A little bit later, we're going to get into the energy independence thing with some news and information that you haven't heard anywhere else about energy. We'll get to that uh, probably, we are in the early part of the second hour. She continued, our members want to remind the world that America is a nation that deserves gratitude for their generosity, that we will lead with strength through not just power, but with principles. How about with laws? That would be different from what we're experiencing now. She said, we believe it's time to unite behind a positive message and to promote an agenda built on our values and the American ideals of freedom, justice, and equality, not equity. I'm just adding that P.S. She didn't say that. But there's a big difference between equality and equity. The left, Democrats, they want equity. They spurn equality because in equality, you can't manipulate anything. Equality is just what it is. Everybody has the same opportunity for everything. Everybody has those opportunities. That's the way America's always been. Of course, that's the way it should be. <laughs> ah, when, when we come back after this break, we're going to hear from General Keene. I don't know if you know this or not. Joe Biden's headed to the Middle East today. Now, let, let, let me think back. Wasn't he over in Europe just a week, 10 days ago? Why, oh, why could Joe not... Um, have jumped over to Saudi Arabia where he's headed while he was over there. I mean, it would have taken a whole lot less time. I mean, he went over there, he went to Europe. Then he flew back to the U.S. Well, he didn't fly back to the U.S. He flew back to spend some catch-up time in Delaware. He goes back to the White House for a few days, and now he's headed over to Saudi Arabia to get on his knees where he's going to get really, really busy begging for oil from the Saudis. Oh my gosh. Back with that and more after this. Welcome to McDonald's. Can I take your order? Yeah, I'll have a pre-meeting pump-up, a Monday fixer, and a screaming boss recovery. So that's one peppermint mocha, one McCafe frappe, and one fruit smoothie? Yep. Name your drink. McDonald's has it. We're your destination for those special flavors that help you get through your day. Get any small McCafe smoothie, frappe, shake, or espresso drink for only $2. Even the delicious new peppermint mocha. For a limited time, price and participation may vary. 
Don't miss our iHeartRadio at-home session with Jesse McCartney. Presented by Hellman's. An exclusive and intimate performance. At a time when we're craving live music. Watch Tuesday at 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 Pacific on iHeartRadio's YouTube. Missing that restaurant flavor at home this summer? Hellman's is bringing crave-worthy flavors to you. Serving up new drizzle sauces that you can put on pretty much anything. With flavors like cilantro lime, roasted garlic, and creamy chili honey, you can drizzle, dip, and dress to make home the best restaurant around. Carb up with yakisoba, the noodle masters. No matter what stage of life you're in, we have the perfect noodles for you. From birthday noodles to wedding noodles, all the way to those most final of noodles. Every occasion has a noodle at yakisoba, so experience something different. Yakisoba, it literally means fried noodles. Disruptive may be just another overused buzzword, but disruptions in business like network downtime, data loss, social media abuse, and limited bandwidth are downright disruptive. For businesses large or small, Barracuda Networks offers powerful, affordable, yet easy-to-implement content security, application delivery, and data protection solutions, all designed to prevent disruptions and simplify IT. For an online demo or to try any of our security or storage solutions risk-free for 30 days, visit barracuda.com disruptive. So you guys, you know who General Jack Keane is. He's got a, a really wonderful military service in his rearview mirror. And he's a spokesperson. He's a contributor on Fox News often when it comes to big things about uh, military matters, as you can imagine. And uh, General Keene yesterday, he began to look ahead, as we all should, especially as media people and Americans, you should too. But looking ahead to what uh, is expected for President Biden, what he's going to do, what he's going to try to do when he gets over there to Saudi Arabia. And uh, I thought it would be a really good thing to do, to get an idea of what we should expect from this or any president, by the way, going over there and uh, talking about energy matters. But there's a whole lot more to talk about when you get with the leaders of Saudi Arabia. Here's General Keene. President Biden goes to Saudi Arabia tomorrow. I want to bring in General Jack Keene to cover this. Uh, General, welcome back. Always good to see you, sir. I want to talk to you about the Iran deal. Is the president still looking for an Iran deal? Yeah, they pretty much are. I mean, it was one of their first initiatives that they took when they came into power uh, was to reach out to the Iran much to the frustration of the Israelis and also our Arab partners in the region. And they stiffed Saudi Arabia and the UAE, frankly. They were about to receive military shipments from us, and the president uh, delayed all of that and also pulled out uh, the Patriot missile batteries we had in Saudi Arabia. He sent a loud message to the Arab world that I'm not supporting you, but yet he's trying to work a deal with the Iranians. And what did, what did the Arabs do? Listen, they have choices, and their security is important, obviously, to them as well as our security is to us. And they reached out to Russia and to China. 
So this is, yes, this is a reset that's taken place by Biden visiting there, and I hope it uh, turns out to be a positive visit. But make no mistake, I mean, clearly the United States wants to deal with Iran, despite the fact it will be fundamentally flawed, despite the fact there's bipartisan opposition to it, led no less by the Democratic chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, Bob Menendez, who was opposed to the first deal in 2015 and is opposed to this one as well. So basically, we're just begging for oil. That's what we're doing over there. Is that it? No, I mean, the visit, the visit, a different subject now, dealing with uh, Saudi Arabia and the, and, and the Gulf yeah. states. Saudi Arabia is a de facto leader of the Arab world. They also are the arch rival of, of Iran. And, and, and the reality is they, they are the world's number one exporter of oil. And certainly the United States wants st stable oil world prices. And that's certainly part of the visit. But the other part of the visit is to shore up this partnership with the Arab world as a deterrence against Iran. And that is crucial. They want to also extend the truce that's now taking place uh, in Yemen. These are major issues that are that are on the table for this visit. And also, I think they're going to try to nudge Saudi Arabia, Stuart, to get into the Arab Accords and normalize relations with Israel. I don't think it'll happen immediately, but Mohammed bin Salman, the de facto leader of Saudi Arabia, I've been told is already there, but the king doesn't want to do it, and he likely wouldn't do it until he became king. But nonetheless, I think it's important to push him in that direction, because that will help in countering Iranian in the long run. Yeah, that would be a success if that can be pulled off. Real fast, General, I want to switch to Ukraine. Seems like there's a stalemate there. Looks to me like the U.S. and Europe really don't want a flat-out win in Ukraine against the Russians. Do you see it that way? Yes and no. I mean, the, the U.S. has pretty much changed its position uh, from just providing limited support to going all in to help Zelensky uh, on the ground with his forces. And that help is, is being de decisive in terms of its results. With the Europeans, yes. Uh, I, I do think there are a number of European countries led by France and Germany that are looking for a way out because of the economic impact that's having on, on them as well. And, and I think the Eastern European countries, uh, Poland, the Baltics, Romania, to include the UK, they're all in. And the reason is they see this threat. They see the Russian threat. If, if Russia achieves a victory in Ukraine, those Eastern European countries, despite being a part of NATO, Stuart, they believe they're next, yeah. and that's why they're all in. But yes, you're, you put your finger on the underbelly of the problem that we have with the war in Ukraine, that this softness being developed among the Europeans for sticking with this, and that is going to be a problem going down the road. Kind of, sure it's referred to as Ukraine fatigue. Ah. Yes, and it, it can truly hurt. Yeah, uh, General, we really need and want your your. Uh... Uh, your expertise, and you always provide it, and we're very happy to see that. Thank you very much for being here, General. Jack Keane. Thank you, sir. Yeah, great talking to Stuart. Thank you. I like both those guys a whole lot. Stuart Varney and General Jack Queen, uh, Keane. Both of them, are, they know a lot, and uh, they're good at what they do, and they're always good to have when you need to get some answers on really big issues like Iran, like our energy and our energy independence that on Joe Biden's watch the first day he was president, we lost. 
He canceled the XL pipeline deal. No real justifiable reason. With that went tens of thousands of jobs and look at your gas price next time you pull up to the pump. Joe Biden blames that on Vladimir Putin. But the fact is, it wouldn't have happened if Joe Biden had simply left that alone. Which brings up, before I go to what I'm about to segue into, I want to say this. We mentioned Saudi Arabia trip and Iran and how that all plays in together. The Saudis hate the Iranians and vice versa. Both of them are pretty big deals over in the Middle East. And they carry a lot of weight and a lot of political um, angst with a lot of other countries, not just us. The big question on everybody's mind is, can the Iranian nation government, can they develop nuclear missiles? How close are they to that? Well, you remember that Iran deal that the United States had with Iran negotiated by, guess who, Joe Biden, Barack Obama? You remember what it was all about? Experts pointed to the deal itself, even though it wasn't ever put in front of Congress to codify. Why would that happen? You would think something so big as that a treaty with the nation of Iran that has to deal with nuclear proliferation, that it would go before a bunch of people that have some knowledge about such things. Remember, when it comes to doing business politically for that eight-year period, who did we have doing that political business? Barack Obama and Joe Biden. Neither one of them have ever worked in the private sector. Neither one knows anything about business and politics. The Iranians are experts in that area, and they proved it in that that deal that they negotiated. They got billions of dollars in cash from us. What did we get out of it? Well, we promise you, we're Boy Scouts. We'll raise our two fingers in the air and say, we will not enrich uranium so that we can convert that into missile fuel. We're promising we're not going to do that. Well, guess what? They're doing it. And experts on the issue are now telling us they're not years away from having that capability. They may already have it, we're told. If not, they can have it in just months. Now think about that for a second. Think about that. Iran in the Middle East having nukes. I'm not worried too much about Israel. Why is that? Well, they have that Iron Dome over the country that works pretty effectively. I think that most experts will agree that they would have a good shot at uh, neutralizing any ICBM missiles, nuclear tipped, that would come their way. But we gave, in that deal, we gave Iran the permission to continue to develop ICBMs, intercontinental ballistic missiles. All they got to do is put one of those on a tip of one of those missiles and point it at Washington, even Los Angeles. Now, there is a chance if they do that, we could shoot those missiles out of the air, but it's a very slim chance. Why is that? You know where they get the technology for their ICBMs? From Russia. And what kind of technology have regarding ICBMs that might kind of give us some issues 
about being able to knock down one of those nuclear-tipped ICBMs that would come from Iran. Russia has now a hypersonic missile. Hypersonic. I'm not going to get into the uh, physics of what's the difference between a regular ICBM missile and a hypersonic missile. Let me just say this. They're a whole lot faster and a whole lot harder to hit and knock out of the air. This president, when he was vice president, was part of a deal that gave Iran, didn't just give them the chance to go for it, supported them, gave them a bunch of money to make it so they could do it. And they, if they don't already have it, they're really close to having the ability with enriched uranium that they weren't supposed to enrich. They didn't need, they told us it was for peaceful stuff. Oh, we're going to build some nuclear energy plants over here. We got to have some energy. You don't need to enrich uranium for nuclear power, for electricity. You just don't. And they've just been right along doing it. Secretary John Kerry, Secretary of State forever. He's our climate czar, but he was also part of that negotiation with Barack Obama, Joe Biden, and the leaders in Iran for that that deal with all that money. And it gave them some free time, some free space. Now, we don't even have to open up and show the Americans what we have in our missile silos and what we have in our nuclear plants, our production plants. We don't even have to do that. And they didn't. That's why we don't know exactly what was happening, but we do know there's a bunch going on over there. And sadly, and scariest of all, folks, we may not know until it's too late. It's not a good thing. So while we're talking about that part of the world, you remember when um, President Biden, he put those sanctions on that Russian gas pipeline that was under construction that was going to run across Ukraine into Germany and a massive ability to send a bunch of a gas in that pipeline over so that northern Europe countries could get it and be able to use it. All the while, we were sending over ships with liquid national gas, and uh, it was cleaner than the gas that's coming out of Russia. Cleanest gas, natural gas on the planet, comes out of the United States. Anyway, put those severe sanctions and it basically shut down the production, the ability to finish that gas pipeline. Well, Joe Biden comes along and they've restarted it. In the meantime, Russia already has several pipelines going over there. And so to make matters so that Germany could wave their hand and say, we're going green energy. We're going there. We're closing our coal energy plants. We're going to just work with Russia. They're going to sell us natural gas, and we're going to use that. Donald Trump told him, if you get in bed with Russia, you're going to get smoked. Guess what happened yesterday? A major gas pipeline from Russia to Germany was shut down yesterday. They did get a notice about 30 minutes early. So what did the Russians say the reason for doing that was for annual maintenance. (laughs) The Nord Stream 1 pipeline, Germany's main source of Russian gas, 
It's going out of action and will remain out of action until July 21st for routine work that the operator says includes testing of mechanical elements and automation systems. That really sounds critical to me. The operator said the gas flow was reduced progressively starting at 6 a.m. on Monday. German officials are suspicious about Russia's intentions, particularly after Russia's Gazprom last month reduced the gas flow through Nord Stream 1 by 60%. Who's Gazprom? That's Russia's gas energy company that's owned by uh, Vladimir Putin and the Russian government. Why'd they do that? Well, Gazprom said technical problems that involved a gas turbine powering a compressor station that partner Siemens Energy sent to Canada for maintenance. Couldn't be returned because of sanctions imposed over Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Now, Canada piped up about that over the weekend, that it would allow the part to be delivered to Germany, citing the very significant hardship that the German economy would suffer if they didn't get a sufficient gas supply. Thankfully, it's in the summertime. If it was in the winter and this happened, their natural gas, you'd have Germans freezing to death, literally. German politicians, they have dismissed Russia's technical explanation for the reduction in gas flows through Nord Stream 1. They, like me, said the decision was a political gambit to sow uncertainty and ramp up the prices of gas. German Vice Chancellor Robert Habeck said he suspects Russia may say some little technical detail is a reason not to resume gas deliveries through the pipeline after the maintenance supposedly is finished. Germany and the rest of Europe are scrambling to reduce their dependence on Russian energy imports. Germany, by the way, has Europe's biggest economy. They've been getting about 30% of their gas-to-power industry and generate electricity from Russia. So they open their eyes a little bit with this uh, Vladimir Putin stuff and Gazprom and what they can do with that gas pipe coming over there and what kind of control they can have over Germany. And guess what Germany did? They told us last month, hey, (laughs) we're firing up our coal plants again. And of course, they didn't just turn them off. They started dismantling them. So it's going to take some time. But here they are. They were looking at the United States, Germany was, and laughing at us. We're going clean energy over here. Yeah, we're getting rid of our coal plants. You guys in West Virginia and Pennsylvania and other states in the Atlantic seaboard that are producing all this horrible coal, burning it, polluting our atmosphere. Y'all just keep on doing that. We're better than the United States. Donald Trump warned them. Lots of people in the United States warned them. It, re- it reminds me of that story, and, and uh, before we went on the air, I was sharing this with Marianne, and she brought this up. Remember the rock climber that was climbing up the sheer face of a, of a rock formation? Really difficult. It was hot outside. He was sweating, climbing, finding these, these little niches in the rocks. And he gets to a shelf that kind of stuck out, And he said, great place for me to take a rest. So he pulled himself on that rock shelf and he happened to look over in a dark shadow over there in the corner was a rattlesnake coiled up. 
So he thought, oh my gosh, this snake will bite me. He was going to stay away from him. So just as he was getting ready to go back up and start the finish to the top, it wasn't really far at this point to get to the peak. The rattlesnake actually spoke to the rock climber and asked him, he said, Mr. Rock Climber, will you take me up to the top with you? And the rock climber said, I'm not going to do that. You're a snake. You're a rattlesnake. You'll bite me. And the rattlesnake said, I promise I won't bite you. If I stay here, I have no way to get water. I have no way to get food. I'm going to die, and I can't climb that sheer rock face. Please, I promise you, I won't bite you. The rock climber thought about it, and he said, well, you know, he's probably right. He's promised he's not going to bite me. So he said, okay, I'll take you with me. Grabbed the snake, wrapped it around his neck, and off they go, climbing up. So they were talking to each other along the way, and it was very positive stuff. Rattlesnake was thanking him all the way up. Thank you so much. You're keeping me from dying. And the rock climber would say, yeah, you're welcome, but please be quiet. You're interrupting me, my concentration. And so just as they get to the top, and the rock climber, you can see the picture, the sheer rock cliff face. And he reaches up with both hands at the last minute to pull himself and the rattlesnake up on the edge of that premise. And the snake just reaches out and bites the rock climber right on the neck. And it startled the, the rock climber, of course. And he let go of his grip on that top level of the, of the rock formation. And they be, both begin to fall. They fell. Certain death below. And as they were falling, the rock climber said, you promised you weren't going to bite me. You promised. Now we're both going to die. Why did you do that? And the snake said, you knew I was a snake when you picked me up. You shouldn't have picked me up. Can you think of anything that story would apply to anything we're talking about today (laughs) or any other thing? There's plenty of others out there that we can talk to you about. So while we were talking about energy, oh, and by the way, you can pick your snake that Germany picked up. Was it Vladimir Putin? (laughs) Or or was it Joe Biden? I'm not going there. The snake in this whole thing, of course, was Gazprom, which is controlled by Russian President Vladimir Putin. He's the rattlesnake. And they were trying to cut a deal with Russia. Why would you want to cut a deal with Russia? They're communists. They're despots. All of them, not just Vladimir Putin. You can look at what they do. Don't listen to what they say. Just look at who they bite. (laughs) And, And you would make a decision. You should make a decision very quickly. I'm not going to trust them. I know what they are. They're snakes. So this green energy thing, green new deal, new green deal. I I keep forgetting how to say that name and say it right. AOC and the rest of the squad, remember they put this thing together, at least the basic outline of it before the 2016 election. Nobody thought the squad and the far-left climate freaks were going to get anywhere, but a bunch of them got elected, and a few more every two years are getting elected. And the push 
is just, I mean, it's, it's, it's nauseating how deep and how loud and how unrealistic the cries for clean energy. We've got to have it, and we've got to have it right now. We need to shut down everything that uses any kind of fuel. We don't care what it is. Shut it down and leave it shut down unless and until we can run this world in its entirety on green energy, clean energy. I mean, it sounds good, doesn't it? It sounds good. But there is no way to flip a switch and make it work. And to believe what we have been pounded into our brains with, information, the necessity of Green New Deal, unless they get a plan in place, a coordinated plan that will tell us not just that we need to go to cleaner energy, but that there's something out there that is cleaner energy that can be manipulated to replace fossil fuels. If that doesn't happen, making those decisions to just shut everything down, everything related to fossil fuel, that's insane. And that's exactly what this president did. The day he was inaugurated, he started the shutdown of fossil fuels and everything to do with the fossil fuel industry. And he was going to replace it with clean energy sources like wind, like solar power, and his panacea for everything, electric cars. That's going to change everything. We just do that and we've got all clean energy. That is the stupidest thing that I've ever heard anybody say, let alone the President of the United States, Joe Biden. So in the wake of all of those decisions, we won't, we won't go back, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> wow. We won't go back through them ad nauseum. You hear that all the time. You don't need me to tell you about that. So instead of going back there, and talking about that, let's look at what others, experts not here in the United States, but others around the world, look at what they're saying about this, about this transition to clean energy. And it's a big deal. It's a big deal. No question about it. Energy and our sources are pretty much the lifeblood of everything that we do in the nation. So we have this big group. It's worldwide. We've talked about it numerous times. A World Economic Forum. They're the ones that get together in those gas-guzzling private jets and go to Davos, Switzerland one time a year in January or February. And they talk about how much better informed, knowledgeable, how much more enlightened they are than the rest of the world. And how we need to do this and quit doing this. And the big gorilla in the room is always fossil fuels, and getting to clean, new energy. Well, in their recent one, and in the wake of things happening over in Ukraine, they all got together again, and they come up with some conclusions that just really blew my mind. They released a position paper Monday this week that links two claimed global crises into one. Now, this is important, folks. And I almost, when I read this yesterday, last night, when I was preparing for the show, 
I couldn't believe this actually happened. Two things. They claimed that two links to the global crisis, and they're interchangeable. they got to work together. What are they? Climate change along with the decline of democracy. This paper says that fighting the former, climate change, can save the latter, stop the decline of democracy, as long as consumers stop burning coal, oil, and gas and replace all that with what? Green renewables. The paper argues for the last 15 years, they say, democracy has been in decline worldwide. (laughs) You think? (laughs) Why has it been in decline worldwide? That's a story for another day that would take a whole two hours of this show. So, they say, to protect and promote freedom, leading democracies must strengthen their economies and safeguard liberty. That just sounds so good. But listen to the reasoning and how they say we've got to get there. It goes on to say ignoring progress toward getting a low-carbon economy could put democracies in greater economic peril, not less. Now, wait a minute. They think they're interchangeable. Climate change and the decline of democracy. This is pretty spooky. How are they going to do all this? How do they say we need to? First, leading democracies should agree to end the underpricing of fossil fuels. In other words, $5 gasoline, oh, it's got to be more than that. They say this, underpricing of fossil fuels is the principal factor that prevents a clean energy transition. The underpricing associated with producing and burning coal, oil, and gas, they say amounted to $5.9 trillion in economic cost in 2020. Nearly a quarter of those losses, $1.45 trillion, occurred in 48 major and smaller democracies. The leading democracies of the G20 should collectively commit to phase out cost and tax breaks for the production and consumption of fossil fuels. They should also phase in more efficient pricing of fossil fuels through taxes or tradable permits to cover the cost of local air pollution, global warming, and other economic damages. And here's the scary part of this. The paper goes on to argue that compliance with, whoa, excuse me, compliance with those things we said has got to happen, compliance can and must be enforced. They've got to enforce this. Taxes can be imposed on carbon-intensive imports to reduce the risk of unfair competition for their domestic industries and to deter companies from relocating overseas to avoid compliance at home. In other words, not only do they demand that we begin that transition to green energy, 
that we got to do it quickly. And the only way to do it is to make fossil fuel so expensive that people can't afford it. And we'll be out there raising our hand and say, okay, give us green energy operation, transition us to that. Forcing other economies to reform their underpricing of fossil fuels to avoid the penalties imposed by the policy. And you know, we'd all come under the umbrella of the economic forum. If we would do that, force everybody to pay so much more, according to the World Economic Forum with U.S. President Biden already committed to punishing the fossil fuel industry out of existence. And this paper concludes that by delaying a clean energy transition, leading democracies are making their economies more vulnerable through continued reliance on fossil fuels. Collectively acting to foster green transition is not only good for the climate, but also critical for protecting democracy. This democracy thing, forget about the transition to green energy for a few minutes. You know, we've talked about that ad nauseum. There's no way to flip a switch and get there. And by the way, ramping up the price of fossil fuel is not going to help us get there. These guys over in Europe, they don't understand. They think everybody in the world thinks like they do. They think that every government in the world thinks like they have their government set up over there. They don't understand representative republic government, which is what we have, and we've had it for 260 years here. They don't understand that. They don't get it. Now, please understand, when you're a multi, not a billionaire, but a multi-billionaire, and you're one of these several hundred in that category that fly into Davos, Switzerland, or they get on these Zoom conference calls, and they talk about what the plebes in these various nations need to understand that we, those 200 or whatever it is, people, leaders, business representatives, whatever, whoever they are. We know better what's best. And so we're saying governments need to support this and not just support it, but make it law. And if you don't agree to do that, what you're doing is you are perpetrating a specific attack on democracy. Now, in some of the nations these people live, they're democratic. They have democracies of some kind of uh, structure. Nobody on earth has a democracy like ours. And from the very beginning, folks, let me just say this. This is not a pure democracy. It was never intended to be. It's called a representative republic, which means the people are always here directly in charge of whatever our governments do and keep our governments from doing things that majority of the population don't want done. And the way that works is we empower direct representatives of us to go to Washington, D.C., sit in Congress, and work on these things on our behalf. It's always on our behalf. There's no other country that has that. In a pure democracy, too, by the way, every issue that comes up regarding anything 
a requirement is for every person that is a voter in that country, vote on every issue. Can you imagine the pandemonium that would occur here in the United States if 150, 200 million people had to go to the polls and vote on every issue that needs to be handled by our federal government and in our federal government? That's why our forefathers created representative republic governing here. Now, i got to be honest with you. I've just about had it with this push for fossil fuels. It makes absolutely no sense. And I'm, I'm not a tested genius. I'm not. But I'm smart enough to know that when you want to change anything, and what you're changing it for is a good thing. It can be good I mean, I'm not talking about changing the bad things. I'm talking about changing what's in place to anything. It is absolutely stupid to even think about doing that unless, unless you have a plan in place for a transition, especially in a nation so big with so much inside it and so many people inside it. Unless you have a way to do it and a plan that's been out there with a timeline and everybody signs off on it, which that should happen. We need to be presented as the American people with a plan and not just, hey, next week we're going to flip the switch and we're going to green energy, which is what they're trying to do. There's a story out about Texas. The Texas government put out a notification saying They're going to have an energy shortage in Texas. You know why? Because the segment of their energy creation that is for renewable energy, all those wind turbines, if you've ever driven across Texas, it's massive in size, and there are wind turbines all over the state, out in the middle of nowhere. I did a Harley trip, and I went on I-20, across through Dallas-Fort Worth. You get out there to an exit for Abilene, Texas, going north, and I was going up to the northern part of New Mexico, so I made that turn, went up through there. There, for miles and miles, on both sides of the road, the highway going north, there are these massive, they're farms, wind turbine farms, on both sides of the road. Those things are massive in size, And they're loud. I didn't know how loud they were, especially when you put a bunch of of them together. It's actually pretty spooky. Texas has got them everywhere, but guess what? It's not producing enough energy for Texas, and they're not going to have enough energy to make it through the winter, we are told. Now, wait a minute. That's a green energy, renewable energy thing. That's supposed to be automatic. But it's not. Why do we keep supporting it? (laughs) Why would we support that when what we need is not to find things just to replace what we have, but we've got to find energy sources that can replace what we have now, but going forward are sufficient to take care of our request in the future and our needs in the future for energy. Doesn't that make sense? I mean, it does to me. Get a plan in place. 
Get something in place that works, that you know is going to work, that you've researched, you've investigated, you brought all kinds of experts in, and they say, here's a way we can do it, but here's how long it's going to take, and here's what we need to do to get to that. Doesn't that make sense? Much more sense than what the Economic Forum is talking about. We got to do this now. If you don't raise the cost of energy to a point where your population will say, we can't afford it anymore, and then they're supposed to be able to say, aha, we told you, now we're going all green energy. I wish that was a possibility, but it's not. Why? We don't have the substitute in place, the replacement. What are they going to use? Real truth, real news, TNN, the Truth News Network. We may not be able to lower the cost of gas, but we can do something about how many miles you will drive per gallon. Stop by your local O'Reilly Auto Parts store today and let us help you increase the performance of your car or truck. Simple things like replacing your air filter, changing worn-out spark plugs, and using fuel injector cleaner can add up to better fuel economy and big savings. There's an O'Reilly Auto Parts store close to you that has the name brands, low prices, and people who can help. Restore lost fuel economy and eliminate rough idle with Lucas Fuel Injector Cleaner. Right now at O'Reilly Auto Parts by two and get one free. Lucas Fuel Injector Cleaner quickly cleans clogged injectors to increase fuel efficiency and help your vehicle run smooth. Lucas Fuel Injector Cleaner, buy two, get one free at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Better parts, better prices every day. Limit supply, see store for details. O'Reilly Auto Parts. Are you ready for best life minus the burnout? I'm Zuri Hall from NBC's Access Hollywood, and my new podcast, Hot Happy Mess, is all about the most important VIP, you. Join us each Monday as we discuss relationships, self-care, career, and much more. Our podcast is for mindful, ambitious, diverse millennial women who are ready for more happiness, laughter, peace, and purpose now. iHeartRadio is number one for podcasts, and it's easy to see why. Listen to Hot Happy Mess every week on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. New Dunkin' Refreshers. Vibrant fruit flavors like strawberry, dragon fruit, and peach passion fruit. B vitamins and energy from green tea. All under 200 calories. Order ahead via the Dunkin' app for a contactless way to order, pay, and pick up in the drive-thru. America runs on Dunkin'. Price and participation may vary. Limited time offer. Is the insanity making your head spin? Okay, let's sit down and figure this out together. Again, Dan Newman. Before we move on, Let me give you a P.S. to this electric car thing. I mean, it sounds so cool. Elon Musk, richest man on earth, supposedly. And let me just say this. He is not the wealthiest man on the planet Earth. He's the wealthiest man of all of those who will give Forbes magazine their list of assets. I promise you, there are people that don't live in the United States and maybe people that live here that are worth more than Elon Musk. They just didn't turn over their financials to Forbes. They didn't think they needed to tell Forbes what they were worth or what they had or how much money they make. By the way, there's a big difference between how much money you make and how much money you have. Nevertheless, Elon Musk and a bunch of other people that are very wealthy, they love the concept of electrical vehicles. I mean, after all, it is cleaner energy if you want to get right down to it. But if you look at the whole process, we've gone through this several times. It's not cleaner. 
How do you power those electric cars? Well, they've got to have batteries. Where do those batteries come from and what does it take to get them in place and have enough power from the batteries to run cars? Well, they come from minerals that have to be produced from digging in the earth and it is nasty to do these great big strip mines where they destroy acres after acres to go down and get the minerals necessary to build batteries. And most of those precious minerals, by the way, are either in China or they're controlled by China. Think about that for a minute. With all of that going on, what do the American people say? By a huge majority, folks, Americans don't want electric cars. They don't think it's plausible. Why is that? Because of the lack of transition, the lack of having the ability and the money to buy the car, but then to also install whatever is necessary to get that energy, that electric energy into those batteries and do it every day. It's much simpler because we have a massive infrastructure across the nation to facilitate in a very good fashion our ownership and use of fossil fuel-fueled automobiles. I'm sure most Americans would be happy to look at a system, and a lot of them already have. They brag about it. I looked at one analysis. There's one Toyota. Somebody did an analysis of the first electric Toyota that came out and the actual cost to operate that over a year and even the infrastructure that's necessary to do it. We've talked about it here. We've written about it here. I won't get into that. But you just can't do that. You can't just flip a switch and do it. Americans don't want it done, so why continue? Well, if you're a big shot in the World Economic Forum, you do it just because it's something that you should do. Forget about the fact that you can't afford to do it. Maybe over decades you could put a plan to place and implement it and do something like that over decades. But by then, you'd probably have enough evidence to prove it's not worth it. It's not going to pay for itself. Why should, uh, why should our governments do things that, you know, are reasonable, <laughs> that Americans can afford and Americans can do, and that Americans want the government to do? Now, I've been following a story for several days. I first heard it over the weekend, and it's about that 10-year-old girl in Ohio. You heard about it, I'm sure. 10-year-old girl in Ohio, she gets raped 10 years old, and she becomes pregnant from the rape. And of course, the story is right in the middle of Roe v. Wade being overturned and these states that have these horrible, egregious abortion laws that prohibit abortions. Some states prohibit it totally. Ohio's one of those states, to make it short, where she can't get an abortion right now. She can't get one. How horrible is it to think about a 10-year-old girl being raped? That's bad enough. Then the rape, she gets pregnant. And then she and her parents, I guess, they think she deserves and needs to get an abortion, and she can't get it. The Washington Post 
they are the master fact checkers, right? So as it turns out, they get into this story and they start checking it and they come back and they post that it's factual. Now the fact check editor at the Washington Post is a guy named Glenn Kessler. And so he wrote a story about this, a column called The Fact Checker. The article analyzed this story about the little girl, story that went, as you can imagine, viral after the Supreme Court overturn of Roe v. Wade. And he admitted there's not a single piece of hard evidence that has emerged to back it up, this story about this little girl, even though multiple media outlets, including President Joe Biden himself, and I wouldn't call Joe Biden a media outlet, I'd call him a, an outlet of sorts, but very few facts come out of his my, mouth. Bunch of people, bunch of fa- uh, sources, they're calling this factual, it's gospel. It first appeared in the Indianapolis Star the first of this month. Now, Indianapolis, by the way, is where this little girl had to be taken or go to get this abortion. And so the way it came out, the story came out, was a doctor in Ohio called an abortion specialist in Indiana and told her about this little girl in Ohio. And they agreed, and so the little girl went to Indianapolis and she got her abortion. Now, it was a a, a gynecologist named Caitlin Bernard. She said she got a call from the child abuse doctor in Ohio that had planned to send that 10-year-old girl to Indiana to get an abortion. The Washington Post did not confirm the story, and they ran with it, because they had the doctor telling the story. So once again, this is just like the testifier, the witness at the January 6th committee, the good-looking girl we told you. She had the blockbuster story that Donald Trump lunged at the Secret Service guy and all these things that were alleged that were done. She was the star witness. But her story, we found out immediately, she didn't even hear any of this firsthand. It was somebody told her. This is the exact same thing, and they are using it over and over and over, and it gets bigger and bigger all the time. There is not a single confirmation from anywhere. Jesse Waters last night at the beginning of his show on Fox News, he did like a 20-minute segment. They made phone calls. They, They called law enforcement people in Ohio after all. If this little girl was actually raped, a 10-year-old girl, there obviously is a really bad sex pervert, a criminal walking the streets somewhere in Ohio that needs to be stopped. You would think, and by the way, there's a law in Ohio, just like most other states, that any such rape has got to be reported to law enforcement. Nobody in Ohio got a report about this. So then they looked up to Caitlin Bernard, the uh, gynecologist, At Indianapolis, she, by the way, appears all the time on abortion-positive news outlets doing stories here and there. She's the quote-unquote expert. She likes to get in the news, and she gets in the news. And listen to what she said. I don't have the actual soundbite, 
but she claimed that this baby was six weeks and three days pregnant. Six weeks and three days. And she said it a couple of times in the interview. She wouldn't confirm it. She wouldn't give any other information. All she did was say that she is the one that took this baby in and performed the abortion. No other facts, no documentation. And of course, in the world we live in today, medical records are private. You can't get your access to anything unless the patient agrees that you can have it. And obviously this girl's parents didn't want to give that information to anybody else. So you had to rely on one source and a second source. The doctor in Ohio that said it happened and then the abortionist in Indianapolis that said she's the one that did it. But let me tell you the thing that disqualified in my mind the veracity of this story. And she said it over and over again. Six weeks pregnant. Six weeks and three days. Six weeks and three days. How in God's name can even a doctor, a specialist in abortion, how can they say with any kind of credibility that a fetus is six weeks and three days old. And what's the significance of that? There's really none medically. What is all this? My opinion here, all opinion, it's simply a political point to be used as a weapon for these these anti-abortion fanatics that are chasing six Supreme Court justices around Washington, D.C. and Virginia, getting in their faces, telling them how horrible they are. Don't those idiots understand the Supreme Court cannot do anything now. They've already rendered their opinion. It's done. That's the way the appeals system in the federal courts work. Roe v. Wade worked its way up through the federal courts. It gets to the Supreme Court. They made their ruling And they can't come back weeks later and say, whoops, we made a mistake. We were wrong. Abortion is legal. All this is is fueling the fire. And this president, he stands on the stage all the time. And he just builds up, makes it worse, piling on top of everybody else that's doing anything about abortion. You want to hear one that, that, that will just blow your mind? In 2019, Alabama passed the nation's strictest anti-abortion prohibition into law, offering zero exceptions beyond a pregnancy that threatens the mother's life. So that immediately after Governor Kay Ivey, a Republican from Alabama, signed the bill, U.S. Middle District of Alabama Judge Myron Thompson ruled the law could not go into effect based on Supreme Court precedent that forbid bans before fetal viability. But following the release of the Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization decision a couple of weeks ago, Judge Thompson lifted the injunction, and in Alabama, the law is now, you cannot have an abortion under any circumstances. So guess what's happened? A San Francisco-based pro-abortion activist group that's known as Prowess, or protecting reproductive rights of women endangered by state statutes. Yeah, I'd call it prowess too. (laughs) You'd never get that long name out. They seek to offer an end around Alabama state law, and by the way, other nearby states that have abortion laws, 
what are they doing? They're offering elective abortion services offshore in the Gulf of Mexico, out there in international waters where the United States has no control. Prowess's Dr. Meg Autry, who is an abortion provider in San Fran, describes the procedure as her life's work. And she seeks to raise about $20 million for a floating abortion clinic. Here's what she said yesterday. Those in the most southern parts of Mississippi, Alabama, Louisiana, and Texas may be closer to the coast than to facilities in bordering states where abortion and reproductive health care are available. Prowess's website says about the effort, the clinic will be able to offer services like contraception and point-of-care STI testing that may not be offered at the closest land facilities. Dr. Autry told NBC Bay Area she anticipates a legal challenge from states that have banned or limited abortions, but she insists her effort will prove lawful. Now, this is not going to be. I just can't, I can't see for any kind of realistic dollars and cents. They could build some permanent facility out in the ocean in international water and have a hospital there. I can't believe it. So what I see is maybe a ship of some kind, a boat, a yacht, big yacht, whatever. And if you want that, what they do, you fly into whatever city, they meet you there, you go to the, you go to the, um, where the yacht is moored, you get on the yacht and there you go. You take a nice ride out into international water, you go into the operating room, you have an abortion, They bring you back and you go home, happy as can be. That's amazing. (laughs) But, But people are out there trying to do it. People are trying to do it. It's just unfathomable to me that this kind of process is still being pushed I guess being a a pro-life person and believing life begins at inception, and I see these sycophants going absolutely nuts about all these issues that are really not issues. It boils down to this. Is it okay to kill a baby or not? And it's not new. It's been around for centuries. It's been a big question since there have been men and women and babies being born. I just... I don't understand. There's no absolute, no reason why any pro-abortion person can justify that this person is not a person just because they haven't taken a breath of air. But everything else is there. And six inches is the difference between being a human and being a fetus. I don't get that. I know a bunch of this is about dollars and cents because the pro-abortion group, they make billions of dollars selling aborted baby parts. They always have. They don't like to admit it, but that's the way it is. Planned Parenthood was created, they say, to assist those who live in minority communities that can't get good health care stuff. So they, they do what they do. They have all these processes that they use, teaching and everything they say, There are a hundred times more Medicaid 
clinics around the nation to give the same services to American women that Planned Parenthood does. And Medicaid doesn't cost the people anything, basically. Follow the money. Follow the money. Wow. This day has just flown by. So yesterday, in the midst of all of these issues that have come up regarding the validity of Joe Biden being president again, Fox's The Five took on this entire line. Can Joe Biden run in 2024? And should Joe Biden run in 2024? This is a longer piece, audio piece, than we normally run here. But I I thought it was important that you hear not just the outcome at the end, but how they get to the opinions of that. And whether or not you like those that are on the five, they respect each other's opinion and they talk to each other, even when they disagree. You won't hear them talking down anybody. That means they're positive in what they're looking for. And they're not, they don't feel like they have to denigrate somebody with an opposite opinion. Here's the five from yesterday about Joe Biden running in 2024. It's a full-on mutiny against President Biden as Democrats and the media ramp up the pressure to stop Biden from running in 2024. Democratic voters repulsed by the president's performance. A New York Times poll shows 64% do not want Biden as their nominee. And 94% of Democrats under the age of 30 said they prefer a different candidate. The Times publishing a stunning report about how staffers, quote, quietly watch out for Biden during his trips to the beach and are very worried about his age. Quote, he often shuffles when he walks and aides worry he will trip on a wire. He stumbles over words during public events and they hold their breath to see if he makes it to the end without a gaffe. And it's not just the liberal media taking notice. Former Obama advisor David Axelrod pointing out that the president just doesn't have what it takes to get his message across to voters. When Democrats chose Joe Biden, when Joe Biden was elected, he was elected for the very things that he's being criticized for. He was elected because he was considered a, a calm, conciliatory figure. When he tries, people say, why isn't he you know, more angry uh, out there? When he tries to do that, uh, you know, he comes across like, Uh, Clint uh, Eastwood and Gran Torino chasing kids off the lawn. It's not a good look. That's not who he is. And how reassuring. Kamala Harris giving a curiously worded response to who will be on the ticket in 2024. Listen to President Biden. He intends to run. And if he does, I intend to run with him. (laughs) So there you go. Jesse, I'm going to start with you. We knew in December, if not before then, that this trouble was, that this president was in huge trouble. Now, having known that, we knew it. They definitely knew it. They're polling every minute, I'm sure. How dumb are they that they couldn't figure out some way to get back and to try to get some of these numbers or groups to support them? Well, Judge, if I were advising the Biden White House, they would have turned this around by now because it's pretty simple. You just try to do everything you can to lower gas prices and that'll solve everything. But they haven't done that. 
the fact that this drops in the Sunday edition of the Times, biggest circulation, they follow up with the one-two combo, the Monday story on the polling, that was designed for maximum impact because everybody in the liberal media, they wake up in their miserable apartments, they open the New York Times, and they see, this is what I'm going to do on the show today. So this is the New York Times telling the rest of the press, the Biden protection racket is over. Stop circling the wagons. We can tell the truth now. And it didn't take the Afghanistan situation or gas prices or immigration inflation. It took Joe Biden, after they brought down the case from the Supreme Court about Roe, he shrugged his shoulders and flew to Delaware. Now, they wanted him to show up to Kavanaugh's house with a bullhorn. They wanted him to chain himself to a Planned Parenthood. When they say he didn't meet the moment, that's what they meet. He didn't release a primal scream. And that's what the base expected. So when they opened up the paper on Sunday, they must have been confused. The readers, it sounded like a Jesse Waters prime. From the White House staff were just as bad. They were like, oh, well, sometimes when he gets into Air Force One, he doesn't fall asleep right away. Or, you know, actually, the president sometimes helps write his own speeches. And sometimes in meetings, he actually asks questions in meetings. So... But what did it for me is when they said that they had to break up those overseas trips because he needed to rest. He should have gone to Europe and then just jaunted south to the Mideast in one shot. But they had to have him fly back here and rest for three weeks. Now, if he can't do that, how's he supposed to run for president when you're zigzagging all over the well, country, going Jesse. from fundraiser to speech to White House event? He's not going to be able to physically do it. And that was the most revealing thing for the, me. But the thing is, he hid in his basement last time. And I'll think of a reason for him to hide in the basement this time. I can see that, Dana, you're chomping at the bit. Oh, I've got so many notes. I um, so... The other quote that you ha we haven't mentioned yet was one that was on the record from Kate Bedenfield. She's the outgoing right. communications director. And one of the things she did on her way out is to take a shot at Democratic activists who are asking for President Biden to do things that are useless, which is like, like taking a bullhorn and going to Kavanaugh's house so that they can say, well, he really fights and he's really angry. They're not trying to persuade anybody. There's no creativity in the policy process. There is no figuring out, OK, what are the 10 states that we want to make sure that we focus on? These 10 we don't have to worry about because abortion is going to be fine. These 10 states, a little iffy. Those 10 states, whoa, we've got to figure out something there. There's just no policy process creativity. And she said, basically to the woke activists, that like, you're not even in the Democratic mainstream. So now they have lost independents, progressives, Hispanics, and the youth. And I just want to mention one thing on the youth. They're not necessarily the most um, reliable voting group, but they mattered in this past election. When Biden put together a pretty impressive coalition of the willing, even if it was hold your nose and vote for him so that they could try to beat Trump. Mm -hmm. Now you have the youth, for example, amongst the 18 to 29-year-olds, only 5% of them want the party to renominate Joe Biden. And then you have somebody like Mayor Pete, who says on air that they want pilots who are over 65 to retire because they want a new generation. They want off with the baby boomers. When we have a pilot crisis, when we have a problem that every airport is basically dealing with all of these delays and you need every pilot that you can get, they're playing the age card on these guys. Um, when My last point is Biden was only two, one years old when Harry Truman took office. And in his lifetime, we've completely lost the idea that the buck stops oh, at the yeah. White House. And yeah. now, now they're not even blaming Putin anymore. They're full on just trying to blame Republicans.
You know, I'll, I'll tell you, Harold, I see you made a lot of notes. This is, this is, everybody's getting very excited here. But, you know, they say they're citing Biden's age as, uh, as the most important reason why they don't want him to run again. I'm not so sure if it's his age or if it's literally his intellectual inability to identify problems, speak to problems. I mean, the guy, I mean, I know people who are that age who are a lot more vigorous than he is. Henry Kissinger just came out a new book. If you hadn't read it, I know you'd like that book you said before. His book's pretty good on leadership as well. You're right, Judge. Frame these problems and give us metrics. I hope that the White House processes this poll with a sense of purpose and humility uh, and takes the right things from it. If things were going better, you wouldn't have these numbers. The, f the facts are facts. And the facts say Joe Biden should not be president going forward in 2024. I got to be honest with you. I'm not sure he's going to make this entire term. I don't think he can do it. But even if he can, certainly, I don't think he should run again. That's a wrap from Texas. We'll be back in Louisiana, our studio tomorrow. Thank you for being a part of Truth News Network, TNN Live. We love you. We're so appreciative for your support. Have a great day. We'll talk tomorrow. Birds flying high, you know how I feel. Sun in the sky, you know how I feel. Breeze drifting on by, you know how I feel. It's a new dawn, it's a new day. It's a new life for me And I'm feeling good I'm feeling so good Fish in the sea You know how I feel It's a new dawn, it's a new day, it's a new life.
I'm feeling. 